This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of Radio National Drive, an afternoon briefing on the ABC News Channel. And I'm David Spears, in the chair for Fran Kelly. I'm the host of Insider. Soon we're going to be joined by Raf Epstein, the presenter of Drive on ABC Melbourne. It's an all-ABC affair here. Uh, PK, People why, are going to start talking. Why would you need to go anywhere else, though, right? <laughs> I like the way you did that. But he's going to join us uh, for a special look at what's been going on in Melbourne and Victoria. Huge week for Victorians with the reopening of... Uh, well, the relaxation of restrictions. Yeah, not quite full freedom, which we'll get into, but some freedom, more freedom than Mm. we had. Mm. Now, yeah, we are going to get into Victoria a bit later with our guest, but let's let's start on the implications of the beginning of the reopening because mm. it provides the first proper chance. Victoria had to get its its a uh, you know self in order for the rest of the country to respond. And now there's a big debate about the borders, the rest of the borders and when they'll reopen. So let's look at the lay of the land. Tasmania is aiming to reopen borders to Victoria from December the 1st. That's the aim. But then they need to get, Victoria needs to get to fewer than five cases of unknown transmission in 28 days. South Australia has introduced a 70 kilometre border bubble with Victoria, but non-essential travel is, is not on the cards. NT will allow most regional Victorians in from November the 2nd, but people coming from Melbourne will still need to quarantine. And New South Wales wants to open the border as soon as possible, but they're kind of taking, interestingly, David, a kind of wait-and-see approach, which I thought was interesting from the New South Wales Premier, who's been, I thought, more open on these issues. Look, yes, and... There's no doubt, and this will annoy people around the country, but I think that New South Wales-Victoria border is is perhaps the most critical one here in terms of the economy, uh, in terms of my own Christmas travel plans. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> it's, um, it, look, it, it is hugely important, and you're right. They, both New South Wales and Victoria are very reluctant to close borders at all when other states were doing it, uh, but this was the decision of uh, New South Wales. Victoria agreed to it. What Gladys Berejiklian wants to see is basically a stress test Victoria now that it's reopening. So let's see how you go once you've got international arrivals. Let's see how your hotel quarantine works this time. Let's see if you can trace and test and all these things and deal with the problem once you're back to normal. Um, I suspect that's going to take a little bit of time to know. So I I don't want to guess when that border might reopen. I mean, I hope it's by Christmas, but We'll see. Yeah, well, November the 8th is the, the sort of important date we can discuss with Raf Epstein in a moment for Victoria to open mm. up to all of itself, the ring of steel to be removed. So there are some politicians saying they hope, I spoke to some in the last couple of days, that Dan Tian, the education mm. minister, saying that that is a good date for New South Wales to reopen. So there's yeah, some I heard pressure. you say that linking it to the opening of Melbourne to the rest of regional Victoria, that that would be the, the opportunity to do it. And, of course, this uh, border between New South Wales and Queensland has been the dominant issue in the Queensland election campaign that feels like it's been going all year. But it finally, has. finally comes to head Saturday. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if you saw the debate between the two leaders that took place uh, Wednesday afternoon, but, again, it was the dominant issue, borders, borders, borders. Um, you know, should they close, remain closed? Should they open? And I, I think across Queensland there are probably, you know, different views on this. In the southeast, the main population centres there's no doubt this has been popular. People feel safer because of the closed border and, and you know, really like the fact that Anastasia Palaszczuk has done that and held that line. 
I think when you get north, uh, further north in the state, a lot more tourism-reliant businesses are far more anxious about it and want to see some relaxation. So mixed views on it, but there's no question it's been the issue there. Let's talk about the Queensland election then, mm. because it depends when people listen to this podcast. We record it on a Thursday morning, but, you know, the, the result may have been in by the time you listen. But it does look to me like, well, look at the polling, that, that yeah. Anastasia Palaget is probably going to be returned, right? I think so, uh, either in a minority, which she says she will not talk to the crossbench, and so does Deb Frecklington. And then uh, they do. <laughs> yeah. They've got so no choice. One of these things work out without having to have another election. Um, or, or in a majority. Look, the LNP needs to win nine seats to get a majority government in their own right. And I think when you look at the polls and all the anecdotal evidence, that's still looking like a very, very tough ask. But look, there's going to be a lot of, um, this is Queensland, a lot of independent crossbench, you know, you got the Cata Party, all sorts of variations that uh, complications that will come into forming government. But I just think the border issue will be the one that's more likely to carry Labor over the line here. Um, yes, uh, Deb Frecklington's focused probably rightly on the economic weaknesses in Queensland, what the border closure, as well as other things, have have done to, to put Queensland in a position where its debt is going to pass $100 billion, where its unemployment is the highest in Australia, all of that. Um, but look, she's not really, Deb Frecklington, promising sweeping reform or change. She's talking new projects here and there, dams and so on. But again, that's more spending. Um, so I think it, it'll, it'll come down to whether people think the Premier's done a good job on the pandemic. That's right. Look, former Labor Premier in Queensland, um, Labor kind of legend Peter Beattie weighed in on this earlier this week on the show that you've been presenting this week, uh, ABC News Breakfast, and it wouldn't have been what Anastasia Palaget wanted to hear. Frankly, if we don't open up, then Australia's going to go broke. It's a, it's a fact. It's not a political comment. Liberal, Labor, you know, whatever. This is about the future of jobs in this country. Australia's going to go broke. Well, he's got a point, doesn't he? Uh, well, I guess if we keep them closed indefinitely and forever, uh, he does have a point. But, you know, I, I think the flip side of this and, you know, people who support the border closures would say, look at the rest of the world. You know, if uh, we've closed our international border largely, border closures work. Yes, they come at a great cost, but they keep the virus at bay. Uh, and, you know, when you see what's happening in Europe, when you see what's happening in the United States, where the virus is running rampant, that does have a big economic cost. So, you know, you can, I, I can see why this is argued both ways. One more point on the Queensland election. I think coal is, it's fascinating how it's almost been neutralised in some ways. Mm. Um, you know, this really hurt Labor at the federal level in Queensland there, sitting on the fence in relation to Adani. Uh, after that federal election, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, moved very quickly, didn't she? Oh, uh, in, yeah. In getting that Adani thing going, approved. Uh, the Olive Downs mine was then approved. It's, um, I think she's probably done as well as she can to take the heat out of a really difficult issue for Labor. Heat is the right word. Form. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there was economic news this week too, and economic news kind mm. of, I suppose, is linked to the borders and economic um, recovery out of coronavirus. The RBA Governor Guy DeBell told Senate estimates the recession was probably over, in technical terms at least, and he also said the recovery in Victoria would be faster than expected. There has been a lot of politics around how Victoria goes in the longer term um, and, and a stoush between the federal and the state government too. And on the downside, RBA Assistant Governor Michael Bullock warned that souring business and household loans uh, would hit the banks. So, OK, we're technically maybe over, but that doesn't really change 
the optics and how people feel, no. and the Prime Minister really zeroed he did, in on that. And I think he was quite right, uh, Scott Morrison, to say, you know, with talk that the recession's over, he said, well, look, I know Australians are still hurting. It is still a long road back, and there will be some deep scars there um, economically and on people's mental health. He's quite right about this. Look, technically, we're still in recession until we get the figures yep. from the Bureau of Statistics that tell us we've had a positive quarter of growth. The Reserve Bank's saying they reckon we will. Um, and look, they, they may well be right. But I think the reality is we've had one quarter of negative growth of 0.3%, another quarter of negative growth of 7%. So we've come a long way down. If we get one blip of positive data, technically the recession may be over. But it's clearly, as the PM says, a long road back to where we were. Yeah, and technical doesn't mean that the lived reality for people who've lost their jobs haven't been able to get them back. Yeah, and look, the government, I think, have made it clear in a lot of their budget sales pitch in the lead-up to the budget that their measure is unemployment. It's jobs, jobs, jobs. And and that's right. Both sides agree on this. Until that unemployment rate comes back down to something more normal... uh, we are still in an economic crisis, and that's going to be a long time. Which brings me to the fact that we've had Senate estimates over the last a couple of weeks. Senate estimates is where you grill all of the bureaucrats and you find out the truth often in relation to the, the detail behind key policies rather than just the, the headline or what the government you know wants to sell. Do you think Labor landed any good blows in that that's, estimates this week? That's a good question. One thing I do think that they were able to achieve, and I think it's a slow burn, but the job story is a good... Is is an important mm. one that they try to critique or find find the problems with the government's policies because, as you say, that's the government's big sell, right? Yeah. They need to disrupt jobs. the big thing. And what they were able to reveal is uh, that the $4 billion job maker hiring incentive for young people, that's under 35s, mm. will create 45,000 jobs, even though it was kind of suggested in the uh, excitement of it all. In fact, I think I said it, that 450,000 jobs would be would be delivered. David, was the government being tricky here? So the difference here is supported or created, Ah. right? So it it turns out, and this is from the officials, uh, the bureaucrats, it's going to support 450,000 jobs but only create 45,000 new jobs. Again, the government would say, well, you know, without that support, there'd be jobs potentially lost. Uh, but I think Labor's quite right to highlight at least the fact that, you know, when we're sold a policy as being this great job creator, creator, we need to look at how many it's actually creating. On Labor and the way that they've tackled this, as soon as the government made this announcement, the under-35s hiring incentive, Labor was big on critiquing the fact that, you know, just focused on this group. How about the women? How about older workers? I feel like it's really muted that, um, that rhetoric and that critique. Mm -hmm. I challenged Brendan O'Connor, who's the shadow minister responsible this week about it, because I said, well, well, hang on a minute. Do you think this is good or not? And they are holding their fire on this now. Oh, we'll see what the committee report says. Seems well, in terms bit, of whether Labor will b- believes it should, that we should be go wa- yes yeah. should be wider. It seems to me like they went out and went hard, and now they're backtracking a bit and saying, "Let's see the detail." I think that's probably wise. With a policy like this, there is always the potential um, for, for problems to emerge in terms of you know other businesses churning staff. And this was one of the issues that was raised when it was announced. You know, could you get rid of uh, you know one full timer and bring on two part timers and technically meet the rule of the headcount and so on and still access the government cash that's on offer. So I think it's wise to have a look at how it works in practice. But politically, 
I think this was another opportunity for Labor to run out their favourite line right now, that Scott Morrison's all about the marketing, the sales pitch, but not about the, the substance and the follow through. So I think anything where they get the chance to run that line, you'll hear it. Now, let's just, uh, before we bring our guest in, talk about the the huge uh, diplomatic incident, which is a violation of women's rights this week. Shocking. On Wednesday morning, the Australian government did confirm that 18 women on a flight from Doha to Sydney were subjected to compulsory medical examination, including 13 Australian citizens. Now, this was because there was... a a baby found abandoned in a bathroom um, and yeah. clearly they wanted to find out, you know, who who had abandoned the baby, but they did this violation, violating uh, medical examination and now it's caused quite a big diplomatic incident. And worth noting, this only came out because the Seven Network, and, you know, shout out to them, reported this. The government had known about it, we now know, since early October, uh, so for some weeks before this was exposed. Now, it's... The government rightly was outraged uh, and and shared the the shock, the anger that I'm sure all Australians have felt about this, um, that that, anyone would be treated in this way. But then the questions emerged about what had the government actually done about it beyond expressing outrage? Had they... When asked by the media. Yes, that's right. Had they picked up the phone, uh, particularly the foreign minister to her counterpart in Qatar? Uh, Had the prime minister raised concerns at that level? Now, they're waiting for an internal investigation in Qatar to come back. And I think that's due back Friday this mm-hmm. week. Maybe it'll be overnight, Friday night, Saturday, our time, before they then take the next steps. I don't know what the next steps could be. They're not going to stop um, uh, Qatar Airlines flying to Australia. They've made that clear because it's one of the few pathways to get people back to Australia. They need to get right? people back. That's, that's the other right. pressure. Uh, you know, we have trade ties with Qatar as well that are important. So I don't know, um, you know, beyond angry phone calls or letters, whether we're likely to see an attempt at prosecution here. Mm. What do you think? I I think that the critique from Labor, Penny Wong's been obviously really spearheading that, Mm. does seem to have some truth to it, right? Uh, yeah, you know, the government keeps saying, yeah, our diplomats were doing it all, our, our, you know, officials, DFAT. Penny Wong's argument is you need to escalate it at the political level. A minister or a prime minister has power that no no sort of official does, yeah. and everyone agrees with that, to to show that you are... The, that you are really, really upset about it, that this is unacceptable at a whole whole other level, not just people, faceless people operating kind of quietly, quietly. And I think that's true. I do think it, it, it is of ser- it's serious enough that it needed to happen oh, look, at that I, level. I agree. I mean, you, you just think about what these women went through and listening to some of the stories that have now come out, you know, they're sitting on the plane uh, they're then told all women get off the plane. One of them spoken about she feared it was a hostage mm. situation, that women were being taken off and didn't know what was going to happen to the men and so on. Then, of course, they go through this awful experience uh, on the tarmac or in, a, in the back of an ambulance or something. Don't forget, they then have to get back on the flight, fly all the way to Australia. They go into quarantine in a pretty traumatic yeah. situation for a lot of them for two weeks there. Um, it Yeah, it just breaks your heart that this happened at all. It certainly does. Should we bring our guest in? Let's. Time to bring in our party guest. Raph Epstein is the host of Drive on ABC Radio Melbourne and another proud Melbourneian. Welcome to the party room. Hi there, Melbourne people. The sun is shining. It is a beautiful, beautiful day. Oh, it is. It's been a beautiful week Mm -hmm. in some respects in Melbourne and there's no better guest in the party room than you right now because it's it's all been about what's been going on in Victoria. Perhaps we can rewind to Sunday when Dan Andrews 
you know, disappointed many, I suppose, when he worst, said... We, one of his worst days. Yeah, right. You think so? When he Absolutely. said, we're going to pause, we're going to wait and see, even though case numbers had fallen below that magic five on the rolling two-week average. Look, that press conference, there were people in his own government very close to him who couldn't believe the tone that he struck. That was a bad day. Mm. Um, I know you want to get into the... What followed, but one of the reasons they intervened was he had that bad day. But, you know, we all knew we had got there. I think that's yeah. that thing about the day. The disappointment was we all knew, three of us, whole city, we knew we'd done good things, right? Well, he was waiting to see what happened with a, a cluster in the north of Melbourne and then the next day, better news. In fact, I think it was that night they started briefing out and I know I was getting calls yep. uh, saying, oh, you know, the results are looking good, the results are looking good. So next morning, lo and behold, we got, uh, you know, what's now known as the donut. Uh, that was um, the day of zero Cases, zero deaths, and that hadn't happened for, for such a long time. And that, RAF, allowed him to then move pretty swiftly. Oh, look, that donut day and then uh, that announcement that went later and later, normally his press conferences, when they're late, it's bad news. He walked out. The North Face was on. That is always, <laughs> it is now a golden rule. Explain that to our North. national audience Forgive who don't me. care about um, his jacket. Yeah. So I forgive the brand placement, but when he comes out with a suit coat, as he did on Sunday, bad news. Bad when news. he comes out with a North Face jacket, casual Dan, Dan TV, that a lot of Melburnians have been forced to watch, you know it's good news. And the depth of emotion, the tears, uh, the relief, the joy, I have rarely felt that sort of collective joy and mm. just a collective, I mean, you know, those muscles in your shoulders that you didn't even know you'd had tensed up for six months, suddenly loosening and just relaxing and mm. just that relief. But, we have done something few cities have done. I think you're right. And the emotion was full on mm. and I had it like I was about to go on air on television and I actually felt teary. It wasn't <laughs> just relief. It was also pain. Sorry, but we've got of to call course. it. Yeah, I don't know, you of get course. it. But I think let's explain it to people who haven't been in Melbourne and Victoria. It was, oh, wow, did I survive that? I've been at home for months with my children. People have been very, very unhappy. People have lost their jobs. It has been actually, sorry, people say sometimes I'm too negative. I don't mean to be, but I have to call it for what it is. It has been miserable for people. Oh, so that was no pain. Doubt. And the, we know presentations for self-harmful teenagers have gone up. We know the mental health problems are significant. The burden of this has been unique if you haven't been in Melbourne you don't understand. Well, and I, that goes again to the federal intervention. Some of the people, some of the senior federal Liberal people haven't been here for good reason, but mm. that leads you to a misstep, I think. A lot was bottled up, no doubt about it, over mm. 112 days. Then <clears throat> that night, uh, you know, amidst this celebratory mood, you had Dan Andrews post uh, tweets, a picture of the donut that he ate at his desk, and then the picture of the whiskey that he drank that night. Um, and look, you know, there was a really mixed reaction to that. The following day in the federal parliament in Canberra, Anthony Albanese, instead of asking a question at the start of question time, moved a motion to basically uh, acknowledge uh, and, and commend the people of Victoria for going through this, right, and, and put the government on the spot. The Prime Minister, you know, they normally gag opposition motions, but, you know, he, I think, wisely took it and, you know, discussed in, in fairly measured tones, really, the Prime Minister, yes, uh, this is a great effort for the people of Victoria and so on. He did make the point uh, about the need to open up earlier and so on. The standout contribution, though, was the senior Victorian for the government, Josh Frydenberg. The Victorian people 
have suffered so much. The pain, the cost, the loss of Victorian people. It should have never, ever have come to this. Raf, this speech, uh, it was clearly anger behind it, fire in the belly, if you will. It, it resonated, I think, with a lot of the Victorians who share that anger at what they've been through uh, and anger towards the Andrews government. But those who support Dan Andrews, I don't think it would have gone down well with them at all. It just feels such a polarised issue. How do you think the Treasurer's speech there fed into that? I don't doubt his real anger and his real feeling, and sometimes we want our politicians to be real. They haven't worked out how to tackle this guy, have they? The state Liberals, the federal Liberals, they can't stand the fact that Dan Andrews still has majority support. His job approval went up in the midst of it, in the agony of August and the first two weeks of September. His news poll job approval rating went up five points and the Liberals are going nuts. They can't work out how to tear him down and I think they make the mistake of thinking they need to tear him down. They don't. The media are doing it. There are enough angry people in Victoria saying enough angry things on the radio, in newspapers and online. They should get out of the way let people be angry and be far more pointed. I think that speech was great if you're in a Liberal Party branch meeting or you're writing a letter to the Herald Sun. That is not where elections are won. Um, And we are shaping perceptions of how the pandemic was handled right now. And I do think it was a misstep. Not saying the anger wasn't real. I'm not saying that feeling isn't there. But you spoke about those who support Andrews and those who are angry. You've still got a ton of people in the middle who oh, are just like, yeah. oh, you know, geez, this is bloody horrible. This is dreadful. But, gee, you know, he stands up there every day and these journalists rally these really hostile questions at him. Oh, he's pretty good I'm at that, isn't you he? say that, though, and PK, keen to hear what you think as well. Yes, there are some in the middle, but I just feel like it's it's been really polarised mm. in Melbourne, you know, the, the either... I stand with Dan or he's a dictator. I, I haven't seen a huge amount in the middle, i got to say. I mean, maybe they, maybe they are there, but um, I've seen things, I don't know, people are very polarised. I think um, the recovery is going to be the big test. Mm. I do feel like, I know what you're saying, Raf, because there was the sense, and this is a really interesting one. So the Treasurer was trying to criticise the government in Victoria for its management of this and the pain that they've created as a result of their management of the long lockdown. But it was heard by some as an attack on Victorians who've done all this work. And of course, Victorians have done all this work. We have collectively done all of this work, which has been, yeah, traumatic and difficult. For the country. For the country, yeah, right? Because this country can't be COVID free and open up and have open borders and have us go to Cairns, live in our best lives, unless, (laughs) when that finally happens, unless Victoria gets this under control. It's not possible. Sure, but I mean, you just listen to those speeches in the federal parliament that day, right? It depends where you want to draw your starting point. Labor and, you know, Richard Miles, the senior Victorian uh, Labor um, speaker on this, the deputy leader, you know, he points out 700 cases back on, what day was it? July, whatever. On that day, uh, you know, the UK had a similar number. Now look at them, they're in the tens yes. of thousands, we're zero. So isn't that wonderful? And he's right. 
If you draw your starting point, though, back earlier in the year, in May or June, when we had similar numbers to uh, New South Wales, and this is what Josh Frydenberg was doing, um, then it's a very different story. You have the hotel quarantine, the tracing failures, and so on and so on. That should be the focus. So it really depends where you want to start from, right? I think they haven't worked out to handle the Premier. He gets up there every day. He's fighting the battle in the midst of all the other people who are fighting the battle. Question time's already immensely unpopular. Um, Again, I do not doubt the Federal Treasurer's genuine emotion and genuine anger. I've had tons of Liberal Mm -hmm. Party people ring me and they're furious. And it's okay to be angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry because tons of people are angry. But if you're out and you're public, what should you do? You're right, David. Of course, it depends on your starting point. Do you blame the hotel quarantine? Um, You know, do you start Mm -hmm. there? But that's not the issue now. On that day, when everybody who's in Melbourne knows this week's going to be the week when, boom, we're going to bounce out of this and we're going to get some of the joy, some of the things we haven't had. We've had one of the toughest lockdowns for a reason to try and smash the virus. It was the wrong thing to do. And the Liberal Party in Victoria have tried angry. It hasn't no, I, I worked. I think you're right. Oh, at it the clearly state hasn't level, worked. They haven't laid a glove on him at the state yeah. level. But I do think there are some, more than some, who share that anger that of Josh Frotten, not just Liberals, but you know, business yeah, owners absolutely. and others. Uh, and I do think there are some who felt Dan Andrews uh, struck the wrong note with the, you know, the whiskey and the donuts and so on. You know, uh, playing along with the celebration. I, you know, look, the celebration's very real. Um, you know, I felt joy as of well. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's it's it just it's so much trepidation, I suppose, for for all of them. And that's is. where I think the next couple of months are going to be key because obviously I always remind people of this, but this is a political podcast. So when people go, yeah, you're just upset. We are. We're analysing how this, yeah, because people do get annoyed. We're not, we're not Corona cast. So I'm not telling you, I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist, as people remind me on Twitter. Well, I know. The Liberal Party could talk to a few more epidemiologists. Uh, it might make their attacks a bit more pointed. Yeah, but again, Raf, not all epidemiologists have been at one about the strategy. Uh, some have said, you know, I, I spoke to someone this week who, who was, was saying that, you know, we might get mask fatigue in Victoria, for instance. So we need to think about social responses to policies. And I do think having a very long lockdown has had huge economic and other social impacts. And the next couple of months are going to be key. And I'll tell you what I reckon in terms of the politics. If we see the US and in in Europe this massive escalation in coronavirus, which we are seeing, and of course then our media starts again concentrating on that rather than just our domestic stories, while we start opening up and we're enjoying the sunshine and we're feeling a little happier, the jobs are coming back on, uh, maybe we're turning this ship around, perhaps that long fatigue will be, let's just not talk about the war in Victoria, right? Like already well, my partner and I, let's reflect on the personal, are like let's not talk about that lockdown. Isn't it great that they're back at school? A couple of things. I think, you know, this week as Melbourne opens up, what's happening in France, in Germany, France, Macron's just announced a few hours before recording this, that they're going back into, right across the country, pretty much identical restrictions to what Victoria's just coming out of, right? You're allowed out for essentials and one hour of exercise. Um, I think schools remain open, but that's that's the major difference. Um, so the contrast is is stark. But a couple of things that'll remind everyone of the the, the earlier failures that'll be the uh, the Coates inquiry report. Raf, you'll know exactly when that's coming, but it's pretty soon. And now there's a parliamentary inquiry too into contact tracing problems. So there'll be these reminders, and and certainly yes. the, the federal government will want to keep those alive. Uh, look, there's no doubt. Da- I mean, there's no 
small list of problems and blame and failures. I just, I say this all the time to Liberal Party people and they don't hear it. They get too angry. This is not a Ray Hadley state, okay? We didn't have Alan Jones on the radio for our commercial station for decades. We've got Ross and John and now we've got Ross and Russell. They're gentle and, and genial and me. But I'm talking about the, the big commercial talk yeah. back where, where a lot of the Liberal Party vote might be. The anger doesn't work. The only Liberal who's won an election this century to get power is the one super nice Liberal leader, Ted Bailey. Angry doesn't work. Matthew Guy was the former opposition leader. He tried angry. It didn't work. Everyone was really concerned about crime at the last state election. Damn right they were. They didn't want some angry guy in charge of it. They trusted the calm bloke to look after the thing they were kept, they were worried about. That's Daniel Andrews. They still don't get the tone of especially the city. He's kind of looked after regional Victoria now, Daniel Andrews. He kept the virus out of regional Victoria, so mm. that's another reason not to vote um, for the Conservatives. That is, don't get the tone right. And they're convinced he's a liar. They're convinced everyone in that government lies. Now, that's okay if you're in the media. It's not a good strategy. And I hate to draw um, historical parallels that might be too much of a stretch, but the Labor Party after 2001 were convinced John Howard was a liar. All of his cabinet lied about kids overboard. They lied about the Iraq war and they were convinced that was a winning strategy and the country would agree with them. What sounds good at a branch meeting <laughs> isn't what works. And if you're convinced that your opponent is an out-and-out fraud, I suggest to you, dear politician, that's not a good foundation for a winning political strategy. Okay, but interestingly, um, clearly they haven't learnt yet how to capitalise on the anger that does exist. Yes. Well, they don't need to. They don't need to do anything. Stand aside. That's an interesting Stand aside. thing that you say, though. Perhaps that is the way, right? Of course. But you've got to say something, though. You can't just stand aside so and be why completely on earth irrelevant. are the GPs in this city and the epidemiologists in this city the ones making all the good points? Their treasurer, the shadow treasurer, didn't know when she came on the radio with me what their actual policy was. She didn't know in the middle of September that her leader had said, we're going to open up, we want to open up stage three with masks. Their shadow attorney general didn't know when I asked him, does anybody fine you anywhere in the world in a contact tracing interview if you admit you've broken the law? He didn't know the answer to the question and it was the very policy he was advocating. They're not across some really simple Basic yeah, good detail. Mm. The anger's there, PK. I mean, people are white hot with fury. You don't need to pour the fuel on the fire. And in the middle of the fight, they don't want more. People don't want more fighting. They want someone to be calm and reasonable and say, "Okay, mm. government, what about this thing here and that detail there and the QR code at my shop?" Yeah, I, and, and this is the challenge now, right? It's people want competence and they want to make 100%. sure that this is now kept under control. 100%. QR codes, tracing, all of these things. Testing everything. Yep, it all matters from here on in. And it's not necessarily going to be easy. Look at the rest of the world. Absolutely, that's right. Hey, Raf, it's always so good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the Thanks, podcast. Mate. Absolute pleasure. Before we go, the bells are ringing. It's question time. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. 
And we've got this one from Matt, and Matt says, Hi, why are parliamentary sitting days still opened with a Christian prayer from the Speaker? I thought the church and state were supposed to be separate. Regards, Matt. David Spears. It's a good question. Uh, and, look, it is one that comes up from time to time when people take the, uh, take the opportunity um, to watch the opening of Parliament each day. Let, let's face it, it's got to do with tradition and tradition alone. And I don't see any major party moving to change this. You would have to change the standing orders. They have included, though, as, as observers would know, uh, an acknowledgement of country at the start of each day as well, which I think is important. Um, and look, there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that at the time among some quarters in the parliament, but I can't see this changing any time soon. What about you? It's not going to change anytime soon. I should say that because, mm. you know, look at history, things do change, but they take a long time to change. And yes, it's history, it's tradition. Uh, Christian Judeo uh, country, that's kind of the, the basis. That's what a lot of the Anglophiles would argue, and it would be very hard to shift that. Yeah, but it's a good question about, you know, we're meant to keep religion out of politics. And there it is, not just symbolically, but very practically at the start of every parliamentary day. Perhaps we will come to a point one day when our parliament and our country isn't, um, you know, as rooted in uh, or isn't as as dominated by the Judeo-Christian tradition as it has been. Well, um, if, if we are a multicultural country and we have, you know, we've got so many different religions and we do celebrate that as a country, yeah. then we do send a message, don't we, that we do preference one over the others yeah. and that is an issue. But, look, I don't think it's going to change and um, I don't know how many people watch it anyway. So, Matt, sorry, maybe you do, but I reckon heaps of people don't. All right, that's it for the party room this week. But we wanted to give you a heads up on an RN podcast we are excited about right now. It's This Working Life and it's hosted by Lisa Leong and it's all about work. And life, but mostly work. Mostly work. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's quirky. It's controversial. Uh, you can find it. It's kind of like a digital water cooler of work life. And you can find This Working Life wherever you normally get your podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for hanging out with me again, David. A pleasure. See you next time. See ya. My name's Steve Austin. I'm here with Matthew Wordsworth. Hello, Steve. Matt and I each week are doing a podcast, particularly for people in Queensland, called Matters of State, where we look at everything involving the politics of the pandemic. The campaign, the opposition, the hidden issues, the fun bits, the light bits, the heavy bits, the important bits. I love giving people a hard time, basically. <laughs> the Matters of State podcast. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Go to ABC News Online, the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts.